Welcome to Unspoken Unsung, the podcast that introduces people we may pass on the street every day, never knowing how inspiring their life experiences and accomplishments are, or how much we could learn from them if we only knew their untold stories. Carl Kreider's life is a uniquely American story. It's the story of a boy born into the rural South at the beginning of World War II. The story of Carl's life and times is fraught not only with the normal challenges of self-discovery we all face growing up, but also with life in the Jim Crow South. His experiences offer a very personal insight into national and world events. Carl shares the profound impact on his life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, his personal experience of being tear-gassed by the Chicago police and National Guard troops in the infamous police riots of the 1968 Chicago Democratic National Conventions, his work with the U.S. Navy on race relations, and his time in Russia during the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Throughout it all, Carl Kreider's commitment to social justice is clear and inspiring. Meet Carl Kreider. Thus far. Writer, welcome to Unspoken Unsung. Thank you, Dan. Glad to be here. So you were born in Harrisburg, Arkansas, and grew up in the nearby town of Wiener, Arkansas, which had a population of 716. That's as of the 2020 census. Well, it appears that the economy there was kind of built on farming. So I guess it's home to the Arkansas Rice Festival. That's correct. And when I grew up there, it was a grand old population of 400. Wow. I guess it's just pretty much a stopover for people coming through on Highway uh, 69, is it? 49. Uh, the stopover would only be for lunch and a very good cafe. <laughs> so you were born in World War II? Yes. And then uh, you, you lived there in Arkansas through the 50s. What, what was it like growing up in such a small rural town? Well, I didn't know any different. Yeah. Uh, interesting ways to think about it. It was an agrarian economy completely. Uh, so, for instance, the school district I was in, oh, we had a, you know, every school has a division among the kids. The farm kids looked down on the town kids, and the town kids didn't know how to talk farming too much. <laughs> and I was a town kid. Uh, I had to walk about mm, 20 yards if I wanted to ride the bus because I was at the edge of the city. 
and and the bus wouldn't stop where the asphalt started, which was in front of my house. Um, so, growing up in that environment was for me a, a very rich environment. My mm-hmm. family was involved in everything in the community. Dad served several years on the city council of three members. Um, you know, we were our family was very active in the Methodist Church, uh, and I I was involved in the Youth Fellowship, the Future Farmers of America, the 4-H Club. I mean, everything we had. Uh, well, it's kind of hard to imagine you being a city kid in a town with a population of 400. <laughs> I said a town kid. <laughs> but it's true. There were, you know, kids make a distinction. It's a, yeah. it's a fascinating thing looking so back. So was your family there through generations, or did your parents move there? Uh, no, I, generations. Uh, my my mother's family uh, grew up in the little town where I was born, Harrisburg. As a matter of fact, my grandmother and her two sisters lived their entire life on the same street in Harrisburg, Arkansas. Wow. Uh, and my father's family did spend a few years in St. Louis when he was young. I don't know exactly how long. But most of his family was in rural Poinsett County. So so do you know what brought them to Arkansas? Actually, I'm, I'm, I guess I don't know. I'm not aware of that, Dan. That's yeah, interesting. Yeah. Because they had been there for generations, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, even on Dad's side, it would be family. I think some of his family had been there a long time. Uh, he, his parents moved some. They changed jobs every few years, that sort of thing. Yeah. Very blue-collar, very blue-collar family. And what were your parents Farmer, like? Excuse me? What were your parents like? Oh, well... They were, I'd have to say they were terrific. I had very good parents. And a lot of my classmates would ask me to ask them to be chaperones for whatever we were having because they were easier to be around. I think they were a little younger, too. Uh Um, You know, uh, they got married. Well, when Pearl Harbor happened, Dad told Mama he was going to join the service. And they had planned to get married that Thanksgiving and postponed it. So after Pearl Harbor, they set their wedding date for Christmas Day, 1941. Mm -hmm. I was born in December of 42. So, yeah. So you started taking tap and ballet dance lessons in sixth grade. I did. And actually started your own school of dance when you were 16 years old. Well, I'm, yes, about I might have been 14. I have to think about that a little bit. But yes, <laughs> as a teenager, that was my first entrepreneurial effort, uh, Dan. Uh, let me comment on that just a little bit because I, uh, I had tried to play piano, couldn't do it. My mother played piano and violin, and I love hearing her rehearsing at home, our little house in our little town. Uh, 
I'm the only child I knew that grew up listening to violin in my home. I mean, live, beautiful, classical music. It was yeah. just wonderful. Um, and she had all that music talent and not much of a place to use it. Mm-hmm. I didn't have it. I tried to take piano in the first grade. And actually, when I was in the eighth grade, I tried again because I wanted to understand music better. And I just couldn't do it. And and I tried and quit. But when there was a an article in our county newspaper that a dancing teacher from Memphis was going to start teaching in Harrisburg, mm-hmm. 15, 20 minutes away from our house, where a lot of our family was, I told my mother I wanted to take tap dancing. I couldn't, I didn't, I wanted to find out if I could relate to music <laughs> by dancing. <laughs> and she sat down with me and she said, now, Carl, I want you to understand, your classmates are going to make fun of you. This is not something that boys do. It's just not not something that's you know going to be accepted. I said, well, I don't care. I want to do it. I want to try it. I want to find out. And so I would go to Harrisburg once a week. And a few years later, the the teacher quit coming to Harrisburg. And my mother would drive me to Memphis once a week, which was an hour and a half, to take tap dancing. And as a teenager, our group, because by then we were the older kids taking tap mm-hmm. in, in this particular school. We appeared on the Saturday TV show, live TV shows in Memphis. We appeared at the county fairs and the state fairs and the Mid-South Fair. Uh, so it was, it was quite an education for me beyond uh, just loving tap dancing. Now, I was forced to take ballet, <laughs> and there were, I think, four couples of us in the advanced class, and we were forced to do jazz dance, which I enjoyed, but that wasn't, I loved the tap dancing. And so but, I, and then I did, I started my, my own school, like you mentioned. I, 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 well, anyway, I was probably in my sophomore year of high school, maybe junior year, so around, yeah, you might be right, 15 or 16, and I, they, there were parents that came to me and wanted their children to learn how to dance. They're five and six-year-old, you know. Wow. And I talked to Dad, and Dad thought it was a great opportunity for me to learn how to manage money. And I, have, I can tell you a story later about how I became a philanthropist at five years old, but anyway. <laughs> So um, I went to the American Legion, the the whatever the senior guy was, the mm-hmm. American Legion hut. We had a little Legion hut right next to the fire truck in Wiener. And I proposed to them. They had a little stage uh, and a meeting house. And I proposed that I rent that on Saturday mornings. And if they would let me, I would buy linoleum to cover the stage so it would look good so that we could hear the taps Hmm. on the tap shoes while the kids were learning how to tap 
And, you know, we would perform, and we performed there each year. We had a recital, you know, all that, all that sort of thing. And so I set all that up, and after I'd done it a few months, I don't remember how long. So it was Carl Kreider School of Dance. I had invoices printed. <laughs> uh, I knew the family that owned the county newspaper, so I was able they, – they had a printing press, so I could get my, my invoices printed. And uh, then a little town about eight miles away that was part of our school district, Fisher, Arkansas – some of the parents there said, we want you to teach tap dancing to our children. And so I went there on Saturday afternoons and taught in Fisher. And, you know, I handed out my invoices once a month. I had delivered newspapers when I was in the fifth grade, so I knew about collecting the bills yeah, yeah. You know, getting paid. And I did that for a couple of years, yeah. Well, that's sure a stereotype buster. I wouldn't have <laughs> talk about something that you wouldn't expect in rural Arkansas. That's it. Well, yeah, I guess I'm sure. I don't know if people. I don't remember my friends particularly teasing me. I mean, we had cliques, and we had you know, like the jocks. Mm-hmm. Got along better than whatever, and I played. I played basketball in junior high and high school. Uh, the whole time I was doing tap and ballet, I was also playing basketball. You know, and and I was the co-editor of the yearbook in the newspaper when I was a. Uh, so you you went through some traumatic times too. Yes. You. you I recall you having mentioned an automobile accident that really shook your world, I guess, back around then. Could you tell us about that? Well, there there are two. Uh, one of them is a, a briefer story. When I was 11 years old, um, our uh, cousins who lived in Chicago uh, were going to come visit their grandmother, mm-hmm. who was my grandmother's sister, and, we, and they lived about two houses apart. And their son came early and visited, and he and I played together. The, the routine for the family was they'd farm their son out, and Ronnie and I would play together for a week, and then the fa- rest of the family would show up with a little girl, and they would, you know, spend a week's vacation visiting with Jacob's parent. Jacob was the father of of the of, of Ronnie and Barbara. And so on the way from Chicago to Harrisburg, Arkansas, they encountered a drunk driver that hit them head on that immediately killed Jacob and Barbara. And um, Pat, the mother, was lying in the back seat. Now, this was way before seatbelts or anything like that. Right. I think I think I was 11. And uh, she was thrown into the floor and was hospitalized with her back injury uh, and was unable to attend the funerals because of mm-hmm. her injury. I remember that. And so they wouldn't allow... The younger kids, in those days, the caskets were in the living room mm. of the home. Yes. 
And so the caskets for Jacob and Barbara were in the living room. I think she was eight, if uh, something like that. And so I sat on the swing as family members came and went. And, and it had just a profound impact on me that somebody younger than me could die. Mm. I never that had never I knew old people died. Right. And there was a man in town that was a hundred years old and we thought that was you know, he was only one. This was, you know, in the fifties. That was a big deal. Uh and I remember some of my older cousins being so upset, so troubled, so I don't know, traumatized by the fact that this had happened. And they would walk past me to go in and everybody, you know, all this emotion around me. Uh, And I think my mother was trying to protect me from it. Mm -hmm. And that was my first encounter with death. In the eighth grade, my great-grandmother died and I enjoyed her and, you know, went to her funeral. But probably the car accident you're referring to uh, was one that happened my senior year in high school. We had 33 students in our senior class. And we had an, a um, Halloween party for the class. One of the families of one of our classmates owned a little cafe in Fisher, a little town where I had mm-hmm. taught tap dancing for a couple of years. And we all went there, <clears throat> and we had a party. Now, our parties did not include alcohol. and We were underage, and most of my friends didn't drink or smoke or any of that. It's just who we were. Uh, but it was a good party, and we played music, and we danced, and, you know, they had reserved the little cafe just for us that night. And uh, so it was our classes, and, you know, there were couples that had paired up, and some of them eventually got married, and it was just a good evening. And as we drove away, well, this is a fun thing. We had two teachers, Henry and May Wilson. Uh, Miss May taught us in sixth grade, and Henry taught us English in high school, the four years, nine through 12. And uh, we decided they hosted every Halloween a thing at their house, invited all the kids. It's like they were the meeting place. And mm-hmm. we'd done this as young children. And at our party, we decided, let's go to Miss May and Henry and Mr. Wilson's house and just show up thanking them for doing this all these years. This is our last year in high school. We're all going off to college or somewhere. You know, let's just go do that. So we were loading up in our cars and driving away. And uh, I was driving on the road from Fisher to Wiener. And up ahead, there was this cars with headlights pointing in the wrong direction and people all standing around and I, I pull my car up and uh, one of the uh, a younger uh, boy that I knew ran up to me and said Carl uh, 
Martha's lost her leg. She had her leg cut off. And I'm looking, and Joan, one of our classmates, was crawling on all four hands and knees across broken glass, across the asphalt. Uh, there were some of my classmates were looking in the car, trying to do whatever they were trying to do. And um, they had called the police, they called ambulances. Joan was crawling. And I went up to talk to her. She was in total shock. She recognized me, but was not particularly coherent. And so, and I had a, a classmate in the car with me, and um, he and I got her in my car. And I said, we're going to take you to the doctor. Because we can get there ahead of the ambulance. Ambulances yes. were 30 minutes away in one direction. Mm-hmm. And so she wanted her mother. Well, her mother was in Fisher. It was two minutes away. So I drove back to her house, and her mother got in the car with us, and I drove Joan, the nearest hospital was in Jonesboro, which was at, well, a normal drive would have been 20 or 25 minutes from Wiener in those days. We were driving a little faster that night, but it was, you know, a half hour away, basically, from the accident. As we drove, the uh, every police car an ambulance passed us with a siren on and it triggered Joan's trauma and she went into hysterics every time mm-hmm. I was in the driver's seat classmate was beside me Joan and her mother were in the back seat and I was able to talk her down sometime each time I, this was all just I don't know if you call it intuitive or whatnot. We got to the hospital, and we were the first ones there. And so they immediately examined her, and I told them more were coming, but they knew that. They had been alerted by the state police. And so I was in the waiting room outside the emergency room as each ambulance arrived there were five girls from our class in the car the car that hit them had two boys in the class I mean two boys who were not in our class but in our Mm -hmm. high school they were brothers they were both injured fortunately they both survived Uh, the three girls in the front seat did not survive and the two girls in the back seat Joan and Martha survived Martha had her leg severed in the accident uh, itself and one of our classmates put her leg in the ambulance with some feeble hope that maybe it could be reattached it was not Uh, that was the first Sunday that happened I think on a Friday night 
And that was the first Sunday that I missed going to church since I was, I mean, I had a 12-year pen or however many years, mm-hmm. you know, because I was at the hospital. And Martha's, uh, Martha and Joan and I were co-editors of the yearbook, and two of us were co-editors of the uh, new, the school news, newsletter, newspaper. Uh, and Martha and I, I mean, we were all close. Martha had asked for me in the ambulance, her mother told me. She said, and she wasn't particularly coherent, but she said, Carl, I'm, I don't want to be here anymore. Will you drive me home? And we were friends. I would have done that in a heartbeat. Right. You know. And, uh, of course, she... And her mother told me, she wants to see you. I want you to go see her, but I want you to understand that she does not know yet that she has lost her leg. So don't tell her. And I went in and sat on the bed with her. They told me that'd be okay. Just sat on the side of the bed so we had good eye contact. Mm -hmm. And held her hand. We had a talk, and I don't remember the substance of that. We were all in trauma. So at the ripe old age of 16, I was a pallbearer in two funerals. Mm. And the third funeral was actually a neighbor of mine who lived uh, not far on the same little road that my family did. She was a Catholic girl. The Catholic school went through eighth grade. And then the wealthy families could send them to an expensive high school that the Catholics ran in Jonesboro. But most families, they just joined the high school in Wiener, which which, um, our neighbor did. And so um, I wasn't, we weren't pallbearers at, we were only pallbearers at the Protestant services. But the Catholic priest, since he had the entire community in his church for the first time, decided this was the time to point out that the two girls that were Protestant were going to hell because they weren't Catholic. What? And that the girl that we were there to bury was going to heaven because she was Catholic. And I thought to myself, even in that moment, I mean, I've been very active in the Methodist Church, but I thought to myself, even in that moment, boy, did you miss an opportunity? I was not, I was stunned, but I was not angry with him. It's kind of like, because I knew a Catholic family that a member had to be buried outside the Catholic cemetery in Mm. Wiener, Arkansas, because they were not acceptable to the priest in some way. I never did know the whole story, but somehow they violated the Catholic expectations and therefore could not be buried with their family. So all of that led my best friend Ernest uh, and me to sort of rethink 
what is all this religion about? Because mm-hmm. we definitely disagreed with the priests. I mean, priests could think whatever he wanted to. Uh, we didn't agree. And we're not going to. But he and I started visiting different churches over the next few weeks to really hear what they had to say. We went to a Jewish synagogue that was there in Jonesboro. And I had been there as part of our youth group. Our youth group leader had taken us to the Jewish synagogue and had the rabbi tell us about Judaism. It was a wonderful experience. And so part of what came out of that very traumatic experience at 16 was a much deeper spiritual look at the world because life and death became a core part of my experience at that age. Now, I had lost P.I.'s. I I knew of people who had been killed in car accidents. We had a lot of those when I was growing up. But they hadn't been very really close friends. I mean, I had dated a couple of those girls. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't dating one of them at the moment. Um, I mean, we were... Anyway. Uh, and I think that has grounded me in looking at grief that every time I think we experience something new loss that it pulls the string of grief from the very first time we experience loss mm. because as I went through that I was feeling my Jacob and Barbara's death which I really had no resources to cope with and I was feeling my grandmother's death you know, my great-grandmother, I was feeling her death. And I was realizing that I had been associating death with an age. Mm. I didn't expect to die until I was 60 or 70 years old. I mean, that was kind of life expectancy in in those days. And, uh, you know, someone to make it to 100, wow. And from that moment in my whole, as I approached being in the clergy and my life experience since, I do not attach age to dying. Mm-hmm. So, I'm, was that pretty much what began your um, your sense that you wanted to become a minister? I Oh, I wasn't there yet. I was very deeply in the church. It, it was an interesting thing. I, uh, you know, my family was active there, and they needed people to do certain tasks, and we volunteered. And one of the responsibilities they asked me to take on was the church school. There was all this paperwork you had to do for Sunday morning church school. We had to order the study books. We had mm-hmm. to collect money. We had to record who attendance and all that sort of stuff. And at some point, I don't remember what age, probably in junior high, I began being the record keeper for all that. And I ordered the study books, you know, from the Board of Education, the Methodist Board of Education, all that stuff. 
So I had a key to the church so I could come in and do my tasks whenever I felt like doing it. The churches were were locked in in Wiener. Uh, I would go there when I was troubled about something, even before the girls were killed in the car accident. I would go there and sit in a pew and turn the light on over the chancel and pray or just meditate, you know. And that was, and the 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 uh, minister's home, you know, our parish, uh, the parsonage, was right next door to the church. So anytime the light went on, he would know it. But my car would be out in front, mm-hmm. <laughs> so there was no real suspicion as to who was there. And Anyway, that was just part of who I was. It was not until I was in college that I even considered entering the ministry. There, I, I noticed that I, I looked up those two towns, Wiener and Harris, and, Harris and found Wiener. out that there are 23 churches in these two towns <laughs> with a combined population of about 3,000. <laughs> That's today's population. Harrisburg was 1,500 when Wiener was 400. Um, yes, well, <laughs> Wiener had seven churches when I was growing up, including the Negro church or the colored church, which didn't meet every Sunday. But I count that. That was one of the churches. Because I used to, I, I can tell you this story later. I started driving when I was 12 because my mother was pregnant and dad traveled for business. And he was afraid I might have to take her to the hospital when it came time. But anyway, I would drive often on Sundays. But I drive by this black church because their music was so inspiring. And I would just slow down. And I was afraid I would, if they saw me, that. I'd make them uncomfortable because of the reputation of white people invading their territory. But I love their music. And I would drive slow past their church. They, you know, they had a guy come through ever so often, and I, I didn't know anything about it. But anyway, I just, I remember how. So there wasn't much interaction. It was, oh, the no. African church was African Methodist Episcopal, right? Well, I don't. I don't know if it had a denominational affiliation. Most of the time, I lived there. I don't know. I, I really. So didn't there know. was a pretty clear line drawn between. Oh, there were five or six houses near this little building where they held church meetings, and um, where black families lived, and that was it. Uh, they did not go to our school. The children did not go to our school. Uh, even after Topeka versus the Board of Education, and my father stood up and proposed that we integrate the school to save money. Well, these children were bused to Jonesboro, hired a black man to drive the bus, paid the man to be there all day so he'd be there to drive them back. 
it was just a fascinating thing. There were only six or eight children most of the time. But yes, it was a very, very separate experience. You, you entered St. Paul School of Theology and were ordained a, men, a Methodist minister in 66. How did you discover your calling? Well, um, that's a good question, Dan. And uh, my, my first year of college, my parents moved to Jonesboro, and we became active in the Methodist Church there. And they continued the rest of their lives to be active in that particular congregation. And the minister there was a young minister, Alvin Murray, and I enjoyed him. And, you know, when I was home, uh, we would go to church. And if I was there during the summers, I would go to whatever the college youth fellowship might be. You know, I mean, I and I got to know him and. I remember after my first year of college going to him that summer and telling him I was considering the ministry, but I wasn't that good a person. And I wasn't sure I could be in clergy and be human. Mm. You know, I had, and he really took to that. He laughed. And so he started talking to me about him and his family and his, he and his wife. And his wife astonished me because we went to a pool party and she wore a bathing suit. You know, I mean, you know, it wasn't revealing. I'm not trying, to, you know, but she wore a bathing suit in public, which was quite the thing. And uh, that had been the early 60s. Um, and I felt like he was so human and his sermons were so pragmatic I mean they were scripturally based all that other stuff that maybe I could do that and so uh, I, I spent time at the Wesley Foundation on the college campus in Jonesboro during the summers when I was home and uh I decided through his counsel that that's what I was going to do. Mm. And I got my license to preach through a correspondence course with the Methodist Church so I could preach before I went to seminary. Mm. And the last two years of college, I was a pastor of six rural churches in Faulkner County, Arkansas. And the Faulkner County parish was 13 congregations, and there were four of us. The senior pastor, who was full-time, and three of us who were students. Uh, and the six smallest churches were mine, and I did that for two years. You've you've said that one of the um, really you know a, a very moving experience in your life was when Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated. That is true. So you know it it's interesting because I get that that race was clearly 
you know, still a fraught issue where you grew up. How did how did it come about that that meant so much to you? What what did what caused that? Well, I I followed him. I was aware of him. He was a Southern black minister. I mean, he was in Georgia. I was in Arkansas. Uh, I read when I went to seminary. The the thing that moved me most was his letter from a Birmingham jail, mm. which. Uh, a lot of people, if, if anyone listening this isn't familiar with that, go read that piece of history. Uh, uh, and it shifted me. Uh, um, seminary shifted me, but it shifted me. I mean, I was always criticized for being too liberal as a kid, but I wasn't an activist. You know, I mean, I had my opinions, and I didn't mind expressing them. I remember when I was kind of young, we had a missionary come speak to our church once, and she met with our youth group, and she was explaining the caste system in India. I think I was only fifth or sixth grade. I said, well, we got a caste system in the United States. Mm. She looked at me, I said, well, look how we treat black people. I mean, there it is. There's our caste system. So it's not that I was unaware. I mean, I, I observed what was going on around me. But the activism came out of my theological training. And the experience around Martin Luther King's assassination, I had become, uh, well, this was um, my senior year of seminary, and I was had an internship my senior year working with the inner city of Kansas City, Kansas. And um, the Council of Churches in Kansas City had organized. They were expecting trouble. There had been trouble in other communities at some point. And they had organized to train white clergy to walk the streets of the inner city when there was a threat of violence. And they had given the few black clergy walkie-talkies. And this is, you know, in the 60s. And so they could, if we saw a problem, we were to back away, notify our central office. They would call black ministers who would come into the community and calm the situation. So as a senior in seminary, I was part of this volunteer group that was organized to do this. I had been, this is part of the story, I'm not digressing, I had been invited to Indianapolis to interview for a pastoral appointment after I graduated seminary. And I had spent a couple of days there and looked at working in the inner city, working in a couple of churches. There were, they had four openings for me to consider. And as we were driving back to the airport in Indianapolis at April, the, this pastor who had interviewed me to be his associate, the radio announced that Martin Luther King had been shot. Hmm. And we were 
paying rapt attention to that. I got to the airport, and in those days, if you got to the gate, they let you board. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and I I was the second person to board the plane. And as I boarded, I mentioned to this woman flight attendant, I said, oh, have you heard anything about uh, Martin Luther King? And she said, somebody ought to shoot that man. Wow. And I said, well, I think somebody just did. And she just went ashen. And I got on the plane, and this business guy and I sat up near the front, and the pilot, who was already in in the cockpit, was giving her reports, and she gave them to us. And during the flight from Indianapolis to Kansas City, she stopped at my seat repeatedly to apologize for her behavior. Wow. It was a fascinating experience for me. So when I got back to Kansas City, I called this Council Churches group that I was a part of. I spent the next four or five nights in curfew detention centers where they were taking abused black people and for violating detention. We had legal aid lawyers there to interview them about how they've been abused by the police, and we were created a record of that, which was eventually filed with Attorney General Ramsey Clark at the end of all this. In the afternoons, we walked the potentially explosive neighborhoods, and I talked to more black street prostitutes and more shopkeepers than I ever had. We wore our clerical collars, and we chatted, and we were friendly, and they're like, why are you here? We're here because Dr. King got shot. You know, things don't sound too good. What's going on? And we would be in, generally, there would be two white clergy roaming around a particular section of the city. And um, the only time I had to phone anything in, I think it was the first night, I was the first person at one of the storefront fires. And, of course, we didn't have cell phones. I went to the phone booth on the corner next to the store and phoned it in. And when I phoned it in, text sample one of my uh, seminary professors who was on the, the phone line that night said, get out of there. They are shooting at the fire trucks when they show up. They're setting fires, and then when the firemen arrive, they're taking pot shots at them to prevent them from putting out the fire. So you get out of there right now. So I drove those, well, the first night I drove around. Then I had worked in a detention center interviewing these people, giving them food and coffee, and when they were too angry, just giving them space. And then by the second night, they had promoted me. We needed more detention centers, so I was managing detention center for the next three nights or however many nights it was. And in one of those nights, just a quick anecdote, there was uh, another detention center that called, and this elderly black man had gone to a pharmacy to get medication for his sick wife 
that she desperately needed had been scooped up in this. And they said, he is so worried. Things have calmed down. It was like, I don't know, 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. We're supposed to keep them until 6. He said, I want this guy to go home, but I don't know how to get him home. And so I took the call, and I said, I have a civil defense sticker on my Volkswagen Beetle. I'll drive him. And they said, really? I mean, they were stunned because it had been very violent every night. Mm. And I drove over to that detention center, got this kind, terrified older man in my car, and let him give me directions to his home. And we had to drive right past the buses that were set up in a wagon circle, <laughs> like the old Western movies. And all the National Guardsmen were, they were kind of napping or resting at the moment. But we drove right by their encampment and were, and were not stopped or anything. And I took him to the front door of his home and sat there until he went in his front door. And... Uh, I mean, that is one of thousands of stories of what happened, but it just came to mind. It was it was quite the experience of uh, the. Well, it's pretty amazing, you know. Obviously, those were very very different times, and the world you grew up in was very different than than it is today with regard to race relations. Well, I, I I wish it were more different, Dan. The white supremacy, I didn't know to call it that, that I grew up around, is still here. Mm-hmm. And it has, I mean, during the Trump administration, it was emboldened. Uh, people are afraid to share power and my statement in recent years has been, you know, the Constitution was written by rich white men for rich white men. Yes. And if Alito's recent essay, which might become a legal opinion, harkens back to that rich white men are the only people that have power, and most of those people own slaves— I I personally think that my fear of fascism is as deep now as it was during the McCarthy era. And I remember the McCarthy era. I have a neighbor who was blacklisted during the McCarthy era and had to appear before the House Un-American. Well, I had a Methodist minister friend who had to appear before the House Un-American activities. I mean... Um, this is insidious. I, I, when you look at the long arc, I feel like my experience has led me to a grasp of where we are now, and unfortunately, it's not as different as I had hoped and prayed. Yes. So a few short months after the King assassination, you were in Chicago. Oh, that... For that the Democratic Convention. How did that come about? Well, once again, 
uh, one of my seminary professors had, had, had organized a few of us to go there. The Council of Church, the National Council of Churches had a great interest in the whole, quote, young adult culture of that era. And they wanted a few of us to go to Chicago with tape recorders and interview young adults that were in political campaigns, that were in the streets. That was the first time I ever heard Tom Hayden speak. <laughs> I never heard of, you know, Rennie Davis before, but I heard him speak in the park. I saw uh, the police club people in broad daylight uh, intentionally trying to injure them. It was uh, the first time I'd been tear gassed. And I had had, you know, the feminist movement was strong then too. And I'd had some very dear friends who were active in that group and who challenged me with love uh, about my insensitivity to some of those issues. And they kept trying to convince me that I didn't realize how much power I had as a white male because I kept identifying with the people who were powerless. And a transformative experience for me in Chicago during the Democratic Convention that year was to beat tear gas and have jeeps driving down the street into the crowd being tear gas with barbed wire on the front of the mm. of the jeeps and there was no way to see it or get away from it and uh, a buddy of mine from Kansas City and I were right at the front of that when they would shoot the tear gas over our heads and if you ran toward the jeeps with the barbed wire that was not a good idea we happened to be standing near a vacant lot. Well, it was a lot where all these 18-wheeler trailers had been parked. And we just rolled over, the, literally, physically rolled over the sidewalk, rolled under one of those trailers in this parking lot, and watched those Jeeps with the barbed wire on front. It was about 10 feet tall, would be my guess drive slowly through the tear gas and push the crowd back down the street. And we were lying there as they approached and as they went by a few feet away. And we waited till they had cleared. And then we took alternate routes to get back to the hotel where all the demonstrations were being held. And that was the night that they were saying the whole world is watching on TV and a friend of mine and I who lives now in Sacramento were standing there watching we're on the corner near the hotel watching the Chicago police club people just charge into the crowd and club people and across the street was the National Guard with their bayonets poised and then the the Chicago police would pull back. Well, they pulled back this one time, and there was a person lying there who had obviously had his leg broken. And paramedics rushed in. Now, they were volunteer paramedics. They had on white jackets and a big red cross on their back. Came out to try to treat this guy. And we saw the Chicago police about to charge again and impulsively 
about 10 or 12 of us from different positions around that intersection moved around them and put our arms over each other's shoulders and protected the medics so they could treat this person with a broken leg. And we we had our heads down. I mean, we've been taught some nonviolent behavior. And so we stood there waiting for the clubs to hit us on the shoulders, but they didn't. They went around us. They continued to beat up people around us. But we successfully protected those paramedics and that severely oh. injured person. So I guess the the police action started Sunday night, the 25th of August, at 11 p.m. I guess they were trying to... Uh, they were. They had determined daily, or someone had determined that they wanted to vacate an area, and so that was the first time that tear gas was launched. But this sounds like it was daytime, which no, this was at night when I was tear gas. They had allowed us to march uh, toward the convention, and the march was led by delegates to the convention, and they were immediately in front of us. They picked a place outside several blocks from where there were any TV cameras or anything, and they backed up paddy wagons, and they loaded all the delegates into the paddy wagons, arrested them, and took them away. And people like Kennedy folks and whatever, they packed them up and took them away. And once they got all of the dignitaries all away, they pulled these jeeps up with the barbed wire and started mm. firing tear gas into the crowd that went for miles down the street, you know, blocks and blocks. So I don't remember the exact night of the week, but we had been there probably about three days when that happened. Yeah, the, uh, apparently from what I read, there were roughly 2,000 police that descended on Lincoln Park around that time. And Lincoln Park, I guess, there was an encampment there, but you weren't in the encampment. No, we slept in the YMCA. Mm. But we we spent hours in, in the encampments. I mean, we talked to people there. We interviewed people there. Uh, you know, we, yeah. we, were, we were there to be a part of the young adult environment as young adults ourselves. And so we slept a few hours in the early morning and the rest of the time for I don't know how many days we were there now, three or four days. Mm. But the entirety of the convention, we were in town. So how did the experience of the 68th Democratic National Convention affect you in its aftermath? Well, I had become associate pastor of uh, uh, a suburban Methodist church, Fresh Eyes Seminary, in June, June. And so this was August. And my senior pastor had encouraged me to go to the convention. The Sunday night after the convention, uh, he had arranged for me to speak to the church about my experience. And, of course, everyone had been glued to the TV all week. A conservative member of our church brought the local police chief with him to hear me. 
and the local police chief spoke up and contradicted what I had to say about what I had seen repeatedly through my presentation. It was a fascinating experience. The group of us that had gone to the Democratic Convention then began to go around making presentations, especially to youth groups and and, uh, faith communities, about what really happened there, not to let it pass as just a bunch of rabble-rousers or whatever. It sounds as though when you went to Chicago, it wasn't for ideological reasons. It sounds... It sounds as though basically what you were doing was trying to get a grasp of what was going on and what people were thinking. and It was social research. And mm. a paper was published based on, uh, in some journal, I, I'm, you know, our seminary professor, John Swamley, it was, he was the author, and then all of us that did the interviews and contributed to it were listed as I don't know, co-authors or whatever it was, you know, researchers, I don't know. Um, But it was a look at the young adult community across section because you had to look at the people in the park. You had to look at the people who were just smoking dope and hanging out. You had to look at the political activists, you know, and the, uh, of course, King had been assassinated just earlier and their poor people's march with an empty wagon was part of the uh, demonstration there. Matter of fact, the afternoon I told you that we saw the police attack the people in, in the park and, and beat them up. We tried to leave the park that afternoon. And as we approached the bridges going back over to the main drag in Chicago, the National Guard had taken over the bridges, and they had mounted machine guns on the top of the corner uh, edifice of each bridge, and they stood shoulder to shoulder across, would not let us walk across the bridges, forced us all down, and I forgot how many bridges they blocked, at least three or four. And the fascinating thing about it was it fed us right into the Poor People's Campaign that was coming down in front of the hotel where all the central activity had been done. Mm. And so we joined <laughs> the poor people. I was just within sight of the empty wagon that was a big symbol, heart, you know, mule-drawn wagon of the poor people's campaign. And so I was got to be part of that, coincidentally. It sounds as though it had to impact you, especially... You know, after what you had seen and experienced and must have felt emotionally, that then to have a police chief try to counteract what you would you speaking what what you saw with your own eyes, how did that affect your ministry? Did it change it at all? I I well, I can't say. I I was not surprised by that because I'd grown up in Wiener, Arkansas and people uh, believed what they believed, and they didn't want to see what they didn't want to see. And so I that I I stood my ground with him without getting belligerent or anything else. I just it was my congregation, and I simply said, "I'm telling you what I saw. I really saw it. He did not. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, it was that that kind of thing. But in terms of the impact it had, I think it." 
truly deepen my activism. I mean, I'd come out against the Vietnam War the year before that uh, and wrote uh, uh, publicly letters and a newsletter and all against the war in Vietnam and continued that position until the war ended. Uh, so I think it just was part of my evolution becoming more of an activist. Mm-hmm. I think it said we cannot take anything for granted if we believe in social justice, if our theology says that Jesus stood for equality, then we have to stand for it. We have to be there. We have to, and it's not, we have to, we have to do more than feeding the poor feeding the hungry, caring for the poor. We have to do more than visiting those in prison. We have to find out why they're in prison. We have to find out why they're poor. We have to find out why they're hungry. And we have to attack the systems that contribute to inequality, that create the circumstances where Mm. people don't have enough to eat. Yeah. It almost seems ironic that just a few years later, um, you became a consultant to the U.S. Navy. People were very surprised by that when I did that. Um, And it came out of all the work we'd done in Kansas City with young adults. Um, The the Navy didn't know what to do with their young adults either. And as a matter of fact, uh, during that era, there were, you know, we had race riots in the city. They had race riots on aircraft carriers. Um, and they wanted to deal with it. So I was recruited to help create what they called a counter-racism program for the Navy. And I spent four years working on that. I started before the Vietnam War ended, and I met so many anti-war naval officers and even performed the wedding for one of them. Um, but it was a very rich experience in my evolution around racial issues here I was 30 years old and I was the academic dean of a course that we created it was a, a three week course and mostly minority people were sent to it what you know, the minority people have to deal with the racial issues, and um, it was well. I could go into more detail, but it was a remarkable evolution for me, working with career Navy minority people and what they had had to deal with, and to try to create a counterstructure within the Navy to provide equity in terms of advancement in rate and rank for minority people. And we were did have the privilege of seeing some of the best research that had been done at that time about why that inequity existed. And I felt very privileged to be a part of that wave of work in the Navy from 73 to 77. 
That was another fraught period in in our history too. That was in 1973. That I started. Really, a lot of things were coming to a head then. That was Watergate was going on. Yes. So many things. And I fortunately lived in D.C. seventy three to seventy five. So I followed. I got the Washington Post every day, and I listened on the radio every day, and I followed the whole Watergate, John Dean, and the whole the whole thing. And in in recent years, I got to meet John Dean and talk with him. So, but mm. Were you, were you still continuing on as a minister at that point in time? Or it sounds as though your role had changed. You're well, that, yeah. I was no longer in the pastoral ministry and have not really returned to it uh, in a full-time way. The uh, My bishop, Ernie Dixon, in Kansas had uh, was the first black bishop of the Methodist Church in Kansas. And when I approached him through my district superintendent about taking a short leave from the pastoral ministry there uh, to go work with the Navy on counter-racism, he got so excited that his rabble-rouser preacher was going to go deal with racism in the Navy that he appointed me to work with the Navy for four years so I had the bishop's appointment and blessing hmm. to do that work and and as the first black bishop. You know. Matter of fact, one of my interesting stories about my opposition to the Vietnam War prior to that and uh a different bishop, Bishop Stowe, uh our senator was Bob Dole. He threatened to leave the Methodist Church. He had grown up in, I think it's called Russell, Russell, uh, Kansas, and uh, threatened to leave the Methodist Church if the bishop didn't get me under control. (laughs) And uh, that's my claim to fame. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So it was some 12 years after that you started Kyle Kreider Associates. Well, yes, Kreider Associates. Which, uh, tell us about Kreider Associates. Well, that was in 89 when I officially started that. Uh, I had uh, been involved in training in the church, in the Navy, and uh, people kept encouraging me to start my own business, and I didn't have the confidence to do it. But finally, after spending a few years in the 80s consulting on training still with churches and with some uh, businesses, I uh, started my own business and recruited professional writers, and and I, I had taken on more writing that I can do and more training consulting that I could do. And I, so I created a company in 89. And we uh, have worked with a lot of businesses, uh, including we had contracts for a couple of years with JPL in terms of management training. So we got to visit, visit their uh, location a lot. Uh, but I, uh, in the automotive industry, was where we made our mark. And it was an interesting 
thing of bringing my values of equity into that kind of corporate environment. I had all these church members that I had encouraged to be true to their faith in difficult work environments, and here I had to do it myself. Mm. Uh, and it was a it was a great experience. But for example, one of the things I started doing in the Navy was refusing to write with exclusive language. And as you might guess, uh, military uh, manuals and stuff are mm-hmm. dominate with things like manpower instead of staffing, or you know, and man hours instead of personnel or, or whatever. And I was a huge advocate during those years in the Navy, and we, I refused to publish, to prevent anything to the Navy that included exclusive language. I found a way to edit around it. And so when I started working with the automotive industry, I was doing the same thing, and I found kindred spirits here and there who appreciated that, especially some of the women who, well, I had one guy tell me, I'm so accustomed to reporting to a woman who's in a man's job. And so I had as much opportunity to live my values working in the automotive industries for almost 30 years as I had working in the Navy or working in the church. I mean, I don't think it matters where we are. Well, your client list was very impressive. I mean, you have Mercedes, Lexus, Nissan, the major players. Yes. What do you what do you attribute your your success? Well, it's a combination of things, really, Dan. We we had most of the Asian manufacturers uh, because they were in Long Beach and L.A. because the ports there is where their products arrive, and that's where they have their national headquarters. Actually, my first contracts were with Honda, and then. Nissan and Toyota uh, and the company that I, I have now left uh, has uh, continues work with Nissan and Toyota uh, and we you know we work with with almost all the Asian manufacturers at one time or another uh, I think we we did two things we really were collaborative we paid attention to what they were asking for and I was not bashful. Maybe I was just experienced enough uh, to say, I'm not really sure that's what you want to do. I have another idea. When I did. And we developed a reputation where we really helped. And, and we reached a point at Nissan where we were involved in so many departments that sometimes we would see an organizational overlap coming that was going to create a problem for the organization before they did because they were in their separate silos and mm-hmm. we were working throughout throughout the corporation we were able to flag you two need to talk because we're about to get different we're getting different instructions about the same thing and that sort of thing uh, i think i think we brought i hope we brought an integrity to our work I, when I was at my retirement party at Nissan, we had about 40, well, we invited about 40 clients. About 25 of them showed up. One of the women who had been in management all of it, all through that, just terrific person, said, you know, Carl, 
we worked together almost 30 years. I've never heard you use the F word. <laughs> I said, no, and you're probably not. You know, it, and I think that observation was just symbolic of living the values. Uh, uh, it's not those words. I mean, I think words have power. I don't think that proves I'm better because I don't use it. That's not the point. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a sense in which if you want to connect with people, help improve their lives. And I saw creating all the training programs. Most of the people we train were uh, in new jobs. You know, they they were trying to make a living. They were we were training sales consultants, service folks, and uh, a lot of them didn't have the skills they needed to succeed. And we approached it as a way of trying to bring those people on board and help them be successful. Yeah. 1991, you're off to Russia. <laughs> you trained professional educators and counselors in Russia. So how much time did you actually spend in Russia? Well, actually, I was only there, I guess, a little over two weeks. Uh, we had uh, a five-day course in uh, St. Petersburg and a five-day course in Novosibirsk, which we know as Siberia, that mm-hmm. part and and the beauty of Novosibirsk is that when they were running all the intellectuals out of the government, they all went to Siberia and they started their own university at Novosibirsk. So Novosibirsk became kind of the think tank of, of of the old Soviet Union. Anyway, it was a fascinating place to spend time. I was on the board of the. Center for Studies of the Person, which is Carl Rogers' uh, organization mm-hmm. here in La Jolla. And I had served on that board for several years and been through the training. And Carl had been to Russia to train professionals a few years before. And he wasn't eager to go back. Well, he was later in life and doing a few other things. But the people in Russia really wanted someone to come. And so one of his protégés, who I had worked very closely with, um, Maria Boyne, uh, headed up a team that went over there and invited me to go. And so we trained uh, those professionals in the person-centered approach. Uh, psychology was a whole new thing for uh, any kind of psychology in, at that time. We arrived three days after Gorbachev was overthrown by Yeltsin. And there had been hundreds of thousands of people in the square in St. Petersburg just before we arrived. And we were wondering whether we should actually make that trip. And most of us had never been to Russia. And the first day in St. Petersburg that we walked into the classroom with about 40 or 50 participants, there were, I don't know, five or six of us, they gave us a standing ovation for showing up. And they continued to rave 
about how you actually we were so afraid you wouldn't come and we need this we need this desperately and a lot of them had misled their employers because they would never get permission to come get training from the west and they had taken sick days they had traveled long distances it was it was one of the richest experiences i've had as the time progressed and there's a particular group process that the carl rogers had developed and used where people become very personally engaged before the end of it we had small groups of you know 10 or 12 people uh, it was just an extremely rich experience. I bet. I bet. I mean, th- that was a pivotal period in not only Russian history, but world history with the collapse of the Soviet Union. So 15 nations were formed, including Ukraine. Yes. And Ukraine at that point declared its independence and its transition into a market economy, which, of course, prior to that, Everything had been the Soviet Socialist Union. Yes. We had, Amazing we had, period in time. We were hosted in someone's home one night for dinner while we were, I think that was in St. Petersburg. <laughs> and I was asking about, you know, the school kids wearing their red kerchiefs, you yes. know, and I've forgotten what they were called that. But anyway... And this guy said, oh, yeah, we don't need that anymore. You know, the, the host. There were several families went together because none of the families had enough money to feed us, and they refused to let us add anything. And all these families, and we were told later that we may have eaten almost a week's supply of food for those families because wow. they wanted to host us. Amazing. But anyway, it was a fabulous evening, and... So this father sent his son, oh, he's got one. Go go get your whatever they call those kerchief. And he brought it out, and he said, here, you take it. We want it as far away from here as we can get it. You take it home with you. And so I had this souvenir that this little boy actually wore to school during the, the whole Soviet oppression. It, it wow. was a fascinating experience. I also learned that night, Dan, that if you go to Russia, you have vodka. I wasn't a drinker, but you never have a drink without a toast, and you never have a toast without a drink. And we spent the evening toasting and drinking, and it was a delightful experience. Oh, that's something. So 1994, under the Budapest Memorandum, Ukraine gave up its nuclear arsenal and they assured they got assurances from Russia that Moscow would respect the independence, sovereignty, and existing borders of Ukraine. <laughs> Clearly, that's broken down. Yeah, comes home to roost, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, we also met. Actually, that guy I was telling about might have been from Georgia. And you know, was it 2006 that they over? They invaded Georgia yes. in 2014. Yes. They invaded Crimea and now Ukraine. So, what thoughts, what thoughts and feelings come up for you with, with your familiarity with Russia? What does that evoke for you now? Well, I see 
the Russian citizenry as real people. And some of the folks we were working with, the professionals, were supportive of gay rights. And the Jews and gay people in our group had to avoid certain areas of the cities they lived in. Had And any time there was a fascist rally, just I might say the parallels uh, would be to the Trump rallies, they had to avoid them. They had to walk blocks out of the way to get home because they feared being beaten and assaulted. Um, and that was in 91. One of the professionals that was in my class did not make it the last day to our process because she had been arrested the night before because she had a nervous breakdown and was committed to a facility and her friends told me she would be immediately medicated and no one would be able to communicate with her. We visited a store, a bakery, that had one loaf of bread in, on display. Uh, when I was in Novosibirsk, this my translator, young woman, and her friend, a young man, so wanted to take me to this record store, this music store, so I could, they were so proud of it. And we arranged on my day off before I flew back to Moscow to go there. And we got the bus, and we did all this stuff, and we showed up, and there was a little sign on the door, you know, that they were closed. And, of course, the hours were posted, you know, that they were supposed to be open. And these two people immediately turned around and said, Ah, this is Russia. <laughs> that's, mm. that's the way it is. Mm. You, you can't count on anything. And they, mm. they, we just walked away, and they took me to a bookstore. And it was like they had put so much pride into getting me there. And then it wasn't available. And it's just they have to live life without expecting. Hmm. I don't know. It was quite just a little anecdote, Dan, to represent how I experienced that culture and how I learned from that culture. There's been much in the news that I've been watching about Ukraine and Russia that one of the things that troubles me is, you know, the the whole notion that I saw an interview with an army colonel who had been part of the um, group that was tasked with uh, taking out ISIS to the best of their mm -hmm. ability. And what he said was he said that the Russians in Ukraine, he's also been to Ukraine, and he said the Russians in Ukraine are far more brutal than ISIS was. So it it's difficult to to imagine what it would be like to have a relationship with families like you had and then hear these sorts of stories coming out of the out of that region and imagine those people being part of that well the people i got to know best were the people who hosted us of course <clears throat> um and when i asked them the question is like, wow, are you excited that Gorbachev gone and Yeltsin is, you know, 
looks like you know he's bringing a whole different form of leadership. They say, Psah. nah, they're all politicians. It's not going to be any different for us. Yes. And one of the the stories, one of the men in one of my groups told me what he says. Ah, I, I need to help you understand Russia. He said, you know, here you know about our farm collectives. And we have a farm collective that is doing particularly good work. And we send representatives from other farm collectives there. And it's not long until that farm is doing just as poorly as everyone else. (laughs) So what they saw from collaboration was a diminishing of productivity and spirit and energy, not that their system helped improve it. It's a mm. fascinating little... Yeah, I guess that kind of goes back to that whole notion of how um, I don't know how you pronounce it, the Holodmor, mm. the, when the Russians starved Ukraine. Oh, yes. Um, but it's really a, it's a tough time. It, it's, hard to, it's hard to witness, even from the distance. My, my fear about Ukraine is it's a slightly different form of genocide than what Hitler attempted and the Third Reich attempted. And we were almost too late to prevent, well, we didn't prevent it. And I'm concerned that Ukrainian population is getting wiped out And I'm not saying we're standing by, but I fear that we're going to learn lessons out of this where we did not prevent the genocidal efforts, and it's going to be just too parallel to how we let Mm -hmm. Hitler run. If we obviously... Putin, that whole train of leaders, all they want is world domination or domination of as much of it as they can get. Yeah. And um, that that translates to me that it's too easy for us in our own culture to get comfortable with the fascism. And there's a sense in which even when we label it for what it is, makes people listen less. Mm. And and that seems like a huge challenge to me at the moment, the the, um, tendency in our culture to go authoritarian when we've held ourselves up as a model of democracy and hope for the world Uh, and yet the people in pretty much the white supremacy model that holds the power is not letting go and it reminds me of the reconstruction era where all the black leaders were elected to office and then when they actually did begin to function 
white supremacy rose his head and drove them out and murdered them and burned their, well, the Tulsa massacre. We've just celebrated yes. another anniversary. Uh, um, I. Uh, You've seen a lot of history. <laughs> you, you live you, long you, enough. <laughs> yeah, you, well, but you've had a direct touch. You, you've had a direct contact with a lot of history. It's it's really a wonderful story, you know. But speaking of wonderful stories, you've got a wonderful woman in your life. You've got a son and a daughter. Tell I us do. about your family. Well, I don't know. Uh, I'm very fortunate. Uh, Carol and I have only been married 48 years, so we're off to a good start. Um, and I had did have the experience of being married before, and that did not work out very well. I won't go into that. Um, I have, uh, you know, two very bright, hardworking children. Proud of both of them. Um, we see our daughter. We just. Matter of fact, we contracted COVID from an Easter visit with our daughter's family. Um, and we're proud of all of our grandchildren. We have a, a nurse in Long Beach. We have, uh, you know, uh, our 10-year-old our just won some kind of, as an artist in an art show in her school system. You know, we're proud of, proud of all of our grandchildren. Um, my wife, Carol, is uh, an introvert and I'm an extrovert, and there's a lot to be said there. But uh, I have gained so much from our partnership. Uh, she's someone that I admire and respect as well as am madly in love with. Um, she provided a lot of leadership. Um, she was a marriage family counselor with the YMCA for 25 years. Uh, the Anyway, I, I don't want to tell her story. She's the one that needs to tell it. That's, that's another thing I've learned in 48, or I'm learning in 48 years. Uh, but... I have been truly blessed uh, with my family and with the challenges they brought me and, and the gifts they've brought me. Yeah. So thank you for mentioning that, Dan. So 2017, you sold Crider Associates. That's right. What What's on the horizon for you now? Well, I'm one of those people who enjoys writing, and, and I turned it into a career of, of practical writing and now I'm I'm writing uh, my daughter uh, got me started thinking about writing stories about my life so she can share them with her children mm. you know and I've started that process but it keeps getting interrupted as you know I'm active with nonprofits and yes. and um, uh, continue to live my values and I hope I never quit doing that uh, um, and uh, there are there are things I want to write about and think about and read about, and I just hope to continue to be a student of 
our human society and I welcome the challenges. I, I recently read a book. Well, when I was in seminary, I learned that liberal was not good enough. I recently read a book that taught me that progressive is not good enough. And this book has changed my language to talk about the criminal punishment system Mm. and the prison industrial complex instead of thinking about the criminal justice system because it's designed around punishment and not justice. It's a, And so I'm hoping I can continue to grow and learn and share those things in a way that somehow it may contribute to this long desire to have more equity and more justice in human society. Mm. Uh, and uh, I, I have uh, the, the one song I've picked for my memorial service is Just Passing Through. I don't know if you know it. <laughs> and that's kind of kind of sums it up for me. Uh, I'm visiting this world, and I want to contribute whatever I can during the hopefully century I get to engage it and participate in it. Yeah. Well, th- thank you so much for your time, for your stories, for your thoughts, and this has really been great. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate you inviting me to do this. It's, it's um, been a great experience. Thank you. After my conversation with Carl, I found myself reflecting on the old saying that the more things change, the more things stay the same. We think that our times are fraught now, but they were fraught then and we made it to here. What's ahead really is up to us. Thanks, Carl, for the reminder of what it takes. Unspoken Unsung was recorded in the Conversera studio, Carlsbad, California. Additional recording and mixing was done at Brother Rock Projects, also in Carlsbad. Martin Danner and Ken Langen engineered the recording. Post-production engineer was Ken Langen. The show's host and producer is Dan Danner. Music was provided by Zapslack, Dan Danner. Listen and subscribe to Unspoken Unsung wherever you find your podcasts. And if you like it, please rate and review us. Join us again next month for the next episode of Unspoken Unsung. Unspoken Unsung.